Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Charlotte Reader's Podcast is part of the Queen City Podcast Network, a collection of locally based, locally produced, locally focused podcasts that you can take anywhere and listen to at your own pace. We're grateful to our Season 3 sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, for helping local authors and those who visit the Queen City give voice to their written words. Park Road Books is the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, with a welcoming staff ready to help you find your next great read. The store is right there in the Park Road Shopping Center with the big blue letters. Charlotte Mecklenburg Library serves as an essential connector of a thriving community of readers, leaders, and learners. With 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence, their mission is to improve lives and build a strong community. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. It's a welcoming space for members who like to collaborate and be creative. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet Catherine Swilly, author of What Luck This Life, a story about life on the ground following the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster. In this engaging literary work, the fictional town of Kaiser, Texas, becomes a central character in the novel when the Space Shuttle debris rains down on it from on high. The story is told through complex lives of normal people whose choices sometimes feel like an echo of the chaos visited upon them from a place outside their normal space. Catherine starts the show with a reading from the first chapter, where trails of smoke in the sky lead to somber times to follow on the surface. FM 104. Coyotes, weasels, green flies, crows. The animals heard it first. Along the weedy edge of Route 20, a turkey buzzard quit the possum she'd lucked into and took cover in a stand of pines. The wild pig under Cecil Dawson's oak tree snorted twice and froze. To us, it came from out of nowhere. Two blasts and the roar of a crashing train that rumbled far too long. Our windows rattled. Our floorboards quivered. Our breakfasts trembled on their tables. We thought terror. We thought bombs. We thought of our loved ones. A few of us thought to scream. Those of us who ran outside, the ground beneath us shaking still, saw wobbling plumes of smoke in a Texas postcard sky. Some saw three trails, some claim one. No one saw the fireballs since they streaked west of here. Jimmy Hubble counted the seconds like the time between lightning and thunder. 1,001, 1,010, 1,030. Over the trees of his south pasture, pieces of something fell from the sky. Grover Sharkey heard a whizzing sound like a bullet flying past. Carter Bostick heard a thud on her roof, then another, then two more. We turned on our televisions. Columbia's lost, the anchor said. Not lost, we said. It's here. Cable on a hay bale, computer in a tree, spacesuit in a briar patch, toilet by a school. Beside Junior Pierce's mailbox lay a shoeless foot, missing one 
big toe. Didn't anything burn up? On the shoulder of Farm to Market 104, Lila McFarland reached for a square of silver metal, big as a turkey platter, charred on just one side. The heat it gave off reddened her palm. She made a hot pad out of two old towels and laid it in her trunk. Don't touch anything, the news anchor said. Chemicals danger. NASA doesn't know. Arthur Kenny smelled something in the air, but he could not describe it. Not fuel, not smoke, nor burning flesh. Not the East Texas perfumes he knew. Creosote, fertilizer, pulpwood, pines. His dog held something in her mouth. Arthur's legs went weak. Here, Dingo, bring it here. She circled, teased, and dropped it on his shoe. A black piece of pipe, narrow as a woman's finger. Good girl, he said, and chained her to a tree. What could we do? The stuff was everywhere, light as paper, heavy as brick. We set up roadblocks where it littered our highways. Our children played at searching. For what? A nose cone, a fuel cell, an instrument panel. Coyotes, weasels, green flies, crows. For weeks, we walked with our heads down, watching, watching where we walked. Catherine Swilly grew up in Virginia, where she never seriously considered any career that didn't involve writing. She was a newspaper reporter before moving to Charlotte to become an editor at the Charlotte Observer. A graduate of the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson College, she now mentors writers, teaches writing, and is on the regular faculty at Charlotte's Center for Literary Arts. Her short stories have appeared in New Letters, Memorius, Literary Hub, Story South, Crazy Horse, the Chicago Tribune's Printer's Row, and other journals, and have been cited twice for special mention in the Pushcart Prize. Her work has been supported by an individual artist fellowship from North Carolina Arts Council and by several fellowships. Her novel, What Luck This Life, is a 2018 bestseller at Park Road Books. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for that, uh, that opening segment. So what does it feel like to have your first novel be a success? <laughs> well, you know, success, <laughs> that's, that's all relative. Um, but I'm very happy that people actually are reading it and seem to be enjoying it. Yeah, well, you got some great reviews, and it must feel good to get it right the first time out. Well, I, I, I got something anyway. <laughs> um, so what led you to write about the Columbia disaster? You know, it was, uh, it was about two years after the disaster, um, 2005. I was reading the Charlotte Observer, um, and this was back in the days when the Observer used to have, you know, lots of stories from all sorts of places. And I noticed this story that was from New Orleans, and it was from a forensics conference. And the reporter had gone to one of the sessions, and one of the forensic scientists was presenting her last project. And her last project, uh, she was from Israel, and she had a piece of the diary of the Israeli astronaut that he'd kept in space, and it had fallen to the forest floor in East Texas. And it had laid there for about two months um, before it had finally been discovered. So there were sections of it all widened up, and uh, there were about 18 pages in all. So NASA had given it back to the widow, and she had asked this uh, scientist if she could take it apart and see if there was anything for her to read. 
So you, you started, the wheel started turning there a little bit? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I thought, first of all, I had not heard about a diary mm-hmm. falling and I had not heard, in fact, about a lot of things that fell. So I started Googling mm-hmm. and I found out all sorts of things that fell that we really didn't hear much about. So as a child, were you interested in space exploration? <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my brother ended up being an aerospace engineer. So he was really interested in everything that flew, and my mother was interested. So we did actually watch the the liftoffs, a lot of the liftoffs. Mm. Let's talk about the research for a few minutes and what actually happened. The year was 2003, is that right? Right. Yeah. Right. So how did you go about researching this disaster? How long did that take, and what what was involved in that process? Well, you know, I started thinking about it. after I saw that story, and about a year after that, so three years after the disaster, I found myself on a plane to Texas. I couldn't get it out of my head. And so I decided to go down there for the third anniversary. I knew that there would be some memorial services there, and I went down for a few days, um, not having any idea what I would find. And I started talking to people, and I pretty quickly realized not only was it worth writing about, but in terms of fiction, so many strange things had happened that there was almost nothing that I could think of that, that could not possibly have happened because the stories were so bizarre of things that fell mm-hmm. from the sky and experiences that people had. So I just started talking to people about their experiences. So did you go to Kaiser, Texas? Well, there is no Kaiser, Texas. Okay, well, there is no Kaiser, <laughs> Texas. So how much of this book is uh, grounded in fact and how much is in your imagination? Well, it's a mix. Um, I was very careful uh, I probably should have looked up Kaiser before I asked that question. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you a story about Kaiser in particular. Um, I had a very hard time finding a town that had not already been used in Texas. I wanted a completely fictional town. It's a big state, Mm. and I've got to tell you, most of the town's names have already been used. (laughs) But I finally found one. Um, It was not my first choice. It was my second choice. So the town is fictional, um, but I wanted to be true to the area, and I wanted to be true to the disaster I took some poetic license in some places, but you know there were 84,000 pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, there were over 25,000 people who took part in the search. I talked to a lot of people about their experiences in the search, and so it's it's grounded in a lot of facts. Um, but of course, there are no real people in the book except an allusion to Neil Armstrong and and uh, the allusion to the Israeli astronaut Elon Ramon. Yeah, I was reading somewhere that the. Uh that there was a zone of some 2,000 square miles in East Texas where this debris was scattered right. all, all across Texas. 84,000 pieces, almost 40% of the Columbia right. was recovered. Right. They searched in lines of, of uh, you know, 20, 10 or 20 people, and they're, ve- they're very uh, careful grid searches. Um, they mm-hmm. used a lot of firefighters who actually knew how to do these sorts of searches. But the volunteers from East Texas, too, they started as soon as it fell. Um, because, of course, at you know, 8 o'clock in the morning, and by 10 minutes after 8, they knew something terrible had happened. They didn't know exactly what until they started finding the pieces. So you were talking to real people who had experienced this situation, and then right. you let your imagination add some color to to their lives. Right. It was a, It was fun to be down there and talking to them. I was used to being a newspaper reporter and having an institution behind me and taking a lot of very careful notes when people talked. Um, but this time I just went up to them and started talking and explained to them what I was doing. And um, some of them had never told their stories 
to outsiders, you know. We really have no idea what it was like. No one had ever been through an experience like this. NASA had never prepared for this kind of disaster. They had prepared for disasters at launch mm. and disaster at, you know, the actual landing of a shuttle, but not this kind of breakup. Yeah, and you didn't explore in your book how it happened. You were dealing with right. the fallout, so to speak. Uh, but just to refresh uh, listeners' recollections, the Columbia, uh, I think the disaster occurred on when they, when they lifted off, but then... That was, well, yeah, that, that, shortly after liftoff. Shortly after liftoff, there was, there was a piece broke away. Right. The phone broke away, and it damaged part of the heat shield. And then right. it shut down the, the shuttle program for right. for several years. Right, a couple years. years, yeah. Yeah, while well, they tried to dig into why this happened. Because this wasn't something they didn't understand, right? I mean, these things have been breaking off and causing damage. Mm, it might be something that was not completely understood because what they did was conduct a test mm. that simulated what happened up there and they discovered that this piece of foam which is about the size of a briefcase was coming fast enough to seriously damage the shuttle um, but they they a lot of a lot of the engine well I don't know exactly who but many people at NASA did not really believe that that could have been the cause the actual cause of the of the tear of the break um, until they conducted a test with a wind tunnel, I believe, mm. and saw for sure that a relatively small piece of the shuttle, a piece of foam, could damage the skin at that level. Um, well, it was, it was a tragedy for sure. You had uh, seven or eight astronauts that were on this trip, and they got up there, and they were up there for several weeks, did a lot of research. They were going to bring back all this work. and. Right. On the way back into the atmosphere, it just broke up. Right. And then that set the stage for this particular story of what was going on on the ground. Right. right. <laughs> and right. this search took a long time, right? I mean, they're still finding, aren't they? They're still finding, you know. Um, this, Texas, many, this many year, years later. Right. Um, Texas went through a drought uh, around 2010, 2011, and pieces that had been hidden by water were still showing up. Um, they may be finding pieces for years. So you were a journalist first. Mm -hmm. Now you're a novel writer. How did you make the transition <laughs> from journalist <laughs> to novel writer? You mean in terms of writing or in terms yeah, of Yeah, I mean, so, so there are some different skill sets involved, right? There are. Yeah. And there you are. had to make that adjustment. So There's some things that a journalist has to kind of unlearn. Um, I, I was in a workshop once, a fiction writing workshop, and, and the workshop leader said, you know, every, she, knew she was including me in this, I suppose, every journalist she had ever taught, um, she had noticed that they, they tell what's going to happen before it happens. Because <laughs> that the, reflects the pyramid of the... Yeah, of you only the, have so much space, right? Right, yeah. and, and uh, the other thing that a journalist uh, generally can't do is leave anything up to question. Um, you don't write by implication. You write very clearly what happened and you don't want to leave anything up in doubt. What, while in fiction, um, we write a lot by implication. Mm. Um, you can leave out a lot, um, mm. and that's part of the art and part of the beauty and mystery of it. So those are the kinds of things I had to learn. Yeah, I tell my friends my goal is not to write like a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a good goal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so enjoy the book. It's, it's, uh, it's literary fiction, um, but with a touch of you know reality there. Um, they're kind of connected stories. Can you talk about that, how, how that worked in, 
Because you wrote stories first, and then you kind of connected them together. Right. The book was originally written as a collection of interlinked stories. And I, when it was accepted at my publisher, Hub City, um, a wonderful publisher, they said, you know, we think this could be marketed as a novel, and we would like to do that. Um, they would like to put it in hardback, and they don't put story collections in hardback because Americans don't buy them. Um, so if it went in hardback, it would be it would have get more attention, and they would do more marketing for it. So they asked me to make it a little bit longer and to tighten the connections between this, the mm-hmm. sections. Why, why do you think that is, that, that uh, Americans don't want to sit down and read a short story, but they'll sit down and read a novel? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I had a friend who explained to me once that she doesn't like to keep learning new characters. Right. She, and, she and likes was, yeah. to sink in with the same people. Right. Get attached to them, right. be a part of their life. And then all of a sudden the short story's over and you got to start over. Right. right. But if you connect the stories like you've done here, then there's a thread yeah, that you can follow. Yeah, this is the story of a town, so there are mm. lots of characters. Mm. Um, and I, I, when I ordered the book, I knew that this first section, probably as soon as I wrote it, would be the first section, mm. even when I didn't know exactly what I was writing. And talk about some of those characters for a minute. Your, your book jacket kind of hints at the fact that we're dealing with a lot of different uh, personalities. Uh, give, give us a flavor for the types of people that, uh, that you put in Kaiser, Texas in this book. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. Um, there, is, there is one child, um, an 11-year-old boy, sort of a prescient boy with um, intuition, very smart little boy, um, and his father and mother. Um, his father um, is a works for a tree service. And he actually had to go extract yeah. uh, a human body as part of the, one right. of the chapters there. Right. And then you have, uh, you have all kind of social and human interest issues going on. You've got a woman who owns a store and a man who threatens to assault her and, in fact, assaults somebody else. And you've got race relations. going. You just kind of packed right. everything into one book, right? Well, I, I heard a lot of different it's a, voices. It's a town. It's a, it's a town, right? right. So that, it should have all different kinds right. of personalities, yeah. I heard a lot of, a lot of different voices, especially mm-hmm. after being there um, and talking to all sorts of people. Mm. Um, you know, East Texas is um, certainly, well, it's, it's, uh, it's a very rural place, and uh, it's, it's not easy to make a living there. Mm-hmm. There are not a lot of jobs, uh, not a lot of economic opportunity. So that can make for some um, challenging relations between the classes. Mm. Um, so I wrote about that too. Well, I'm going to have you read uh, another section here from Downward Path. Okay. A Downward Path. It's not true that there were no casualties on the ground when the space shuttle fell apart over Texas. Some things happened that morning. Some happened later. If you connect the dots for us here in Kaiser, more trouble came of that day than most folks know. This is what you might think if you didn't live here. The government hurried here to help us, took over the burden, started the search, brought in food, and organized things. That's not quite how it went. At first, nobody believed what fell on us intact. Cabinets, computers, toilets, things we could look at and say, we know what that is. Our police chief called up NASA and said, we have your people here. Unlikely, NASA said, would have burned up. Ah, beg to differ, Chief Orbaugh said, or less polite words to that effect. He explained in the growl he used when the town council annoyed him, 
A man found a leg out on 621, and what do you want him to do? Put it in his 4x4 and bring it to you? Cars have run over, not knowing. My brother, Spencer Scott, was the district's chief forest ranger. Two NASA types sped up here from Houston, and he escorted them to the highway where someone had thrown a blanket over the leg, and a sheriff's deputy was diverting traffic around it. The men looked at each other. Oh, Christ, one said. They got out their cell phones, which were never going to work out on 621, not back then. Supposed to rain tonight, Spencer said. The land is prone to flood. Orders were giving and searching began. The feds were stretched thin. Since the U.S. government employed him, Spencer was put in charge of the media who came to Chirino County. Really, he said to his bosses, I have no idea. Every day he thought someone from Washington would come in and take over. Instead, they gave him rules to tame the merciless pack. No talk about bodies. No buzzards in the sky. No maggots on the ground. No burned hands or charred remains. In fact, there are no remains. You will call them items of interest. They meant what they said. When a young reporter for a local paper put vultures in her dispatch, phone calls were made from on high. We never saw her byline again. Spencer was struggling. Teresa, he said to me, I'm over my head. My brother's not as tough as me. Not at all a conniver. I married a Sparks, a low-lying, slithering type, and I am acquainted with deception. When Spencer asked me to drive up to Eno and borrow that hearse that Russ Cawthon keeps in his garage just for kicks, I knew he had turned a corner. I delivered it to Norris Tibbet, who drove it down a logging road and told the reporters they couldn't follow. They waited for him to come out of the woods, and when he did, they trailed him like plot hounds to Tibbet's funeral home, pestering to know what was in the body bag. Norris told them, in bits and sass, about how deep in the woods he'd gone this time, and you know by now, ladies and gentlemen, that I can't tell you what we found or what kind of shape he or she was in, but it's an honor to serve my country. Norris stood there in his briar-shredded suit, spinning yarns till dark. The body parts traveled in peace to Spring Creek Baptist at the end of a dirt and gravel road. The government sent a refrigeration truck and the church became a makeshift morgue. The funeral of Mary Lynn Davis was postponed. Spencer faced the reporters with what he could manage. A fine-toothed search of rural America was producing the usual, abandoned houses with meth labs inside and in the woods, bones of the disappeared. Long ago murdered or wandered off, we don't know, Spencer told the pack of hounds. No drugs I'm aware of. Rumors were rampant some of them true. Three scientists in white coats came over a rise and scared a small herd of cattle into a stampede. One longhorn veered off and went after the white coats, who barely made it to the fence. Our cattle fared better than our goats, who will eat anything, no matter the chemicals. A few of them died. A funny story, Spencer said, just as he was told. Sounds good. Don't believe it. Spencer had a headache that wouldn't go away, and a pain in his chest like someone standing on it. When's it going to end, he asked me one night, six days into the mess. The reporter stuck a microphone in front of anyone who would jabber. Our county judge went on TV and preened around like the banty idiot he is. The media had a field day, since their group harbored eager mimics. 
Our people aren't equipped for this kind of scrutiny, Spencer said to me, his voice just a croak by then. Next day, Chief Orbaugh stood on the courthouse steps and ordered the media to leave. Who told you to do that? Spencer tried to yell. Orbaugh roared back about trouble and rumors and noses where they didn't belong. In Eno, the Chamber of Commerce brewed coffee for the prying eyes and answered all their questions. There were brochures about nearby attractions and kindly old ladies with rooms for the night. Eno has a new rec center now, and we have a broken down park. The reporters caught wind that a one-car wreck had been discovered near Kaiser just after debris began to fall. They were calling from Eno by then. The wreck is not related, Spencer said. I give you my word. The elephant on his chest pressed down. All the ruins went back to Florida, where the engineers laid them out in a hangar and worked backwards as best they could. The debris won't lie, Spencer said. This piece fell on Lufkin, that one in Yellow Pine. Here are the tiles that floated down in Kaiser. What gruesome facts they figured out with their maps and calculations and 84,000 pieces. The crew capsule tore apart in 24 seconds as it dropped 10,000 meters. Pray the astronauts were dead by then. Oxygen gone, brains not knowing. There was a recording of voices just at the end. Someone had to listen. If this than that. Life and death, a line of dominoes. Mary Lynn's funeral was put off for a week so she could be buried at Spring Creek Baptist when the FEMA truck was gone. Her brother went up a ladder on the day he should have been on his good gray suit walking a casket down the aisle. His head isn't right since the fall. If this, then that. It's been three years since the shuttle fell. I filed for divorce and a surprise to no one, and Spencer just retired. He is only 55. People think it was the accident last summer when a 300-pound wild boar totaled his car. 50 miles an hour his car was going out on 621, and the thing came straight at him. He had two broken ribs, a sprain in his back, two pins in his ankle. But he was already fried, my brother. Something else had come at him, out of the blue. Not one hog, but a sounder. Okay, Catherine, that, uh, that kind of ties the disaster in the air to the disaster on the ground. You know, you got this breakup that happened so quickly in the air, but then it's almost like what's breaking up on the ground is taking time. Well, you know, people's lives go on. Uh, no matter, you know, what happens, this kind of national disaster. Mm -hmm. um, and so they were living their lives with their regular troubles at the same time they were dealing with this, and which was one of the things I wanted to get at. You know, life didn't stop for them. And then, of course, on top of all that, there were, there were people like Spencer who had to deal with things they'd never dealt with before. And it was an enormous um, task and, and changed their lives, some of them, forever. They've, they've built a memorial to the shuttle um, down there in Hemp Hill, to the disaster, um, and there are all sorts of um, ways in which people's lives were changed. Uh, not to mention the influx of thousands of strangers into a small town. And I read that uh, they have this memorial sometime in late January or early February every year because, ironically, the Apollo disaster and the Challenger disaster and then uh, and the, Columbia. the Columbia disaster all occurred within about a week to two weeks. 
Right, Here late January is, is their time, and, and, and uh, Columbia fell on February 1st. So NASA has a memorial um, generally, although I believe this, this year it may have been put off because of the partial shutdown. So on the back of your book, there's a review Claire Beams has. It says, with this novel, Shrilly has given us a landscape of longings, passions, and heartaches so real and deep we can almost walk around in it. And it felt a little bit like we were walking around in it <laughs> when we were reading this book because you have these characters whose lives are, are being disrupted right. by the debris that's fallen. And yet we're walking around and, and getting to know their lives in a way that uh, is, is well beyond the debris that's on the ground. Right. One of the challenges of writing this book was the very fact that there's this very dramatic event um, with mm -hmm. very vivid details, mm -hmm. and yet I want to tell stories of people's lives. Um, and the disaster, most of the time, was a background. Um, it's sort of also going on. So one of the challenges is how do you get the reader to focus on your character's uh, personal dramas while at the same time you have to present the details of this very um, somewhat gruesome but also very unusual accident. And you mentioned in the last reading, The Downward Path, which really kind of brought to the fore what was going on. Um, there was a lot of publicity. Um, a lot of people come to the small towns to right. look for the debris. And then there's this mention of a car wreck, but it's not connected. But then later in the book, you bring the car wreck back into play with this relationship uh, in a retirement home between right. a black woman and a white man. Right. Talk, talk about that just a second, because I, I do think that's an, uh, an important piece of what you wrote here. You mean the relationship between those two? Yeah, and how that, so she, she sees him grieving over what happened with the car wreck, and yet she's had a past that he can't understand. Right, right. You know, we, it's, it's impossible really for um, folks to understand each other, I think, um, or very difficult anyway. And when you've had years and years of of oppression and, and lack of understanding, um, you know, sometimes you get a, a, a moment where you think someone might be close to understanding, and other times you think, as she did, it's pretty much hopeless. There's not a lot we can do about this. You are never going to know uh, what life is like for someone like me. Yeah, and, and you used uh, you used some of her backstory and her family. Someone in her family, uh, the male didn't show up for the wedding and some hint perhaps that there could have been a lynching or something that might have been, you know, you know that he just disappeared and was never heard from again. Oh, uh, in her story, yeah. Yeah, yeah in yeah. her story, her backstory. Yeah. And then, and then that compared to the accident that, that affected the story. Yeah, well, there were, you know, there were, of course, black folks who disappeared for uh, reasons that were never discovered. And so, yes, there, were, there was some of that in her background. Um, so a lot of loss in this yeah, book and, yeah. and, and a lot of dealing with loss. Yeah. 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 Well, when we come back, Catherine, we're going to um, explore some more of the book here. We're also going to have a, a little author-to-author -author question session here. Okay. Uh, so listeners, uh, hang with us. we got some good stuff coming up. So hey, listeners, I'm here at Park Road Books at the uh, Staff Pick Wall with Sally Brewster. Sally, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing great. So tell us what's on your wall. Um, I've got some kids' books going on for this summer. Um, these are great picture books to read out loud to people. Um, we've got Hair Love by Matthew A. Cherry, which is an adorable book about a father 
who is taking care of his daughter and he is trying very very many hairstyles on her and it, it turns out wonderfully in the end and it's just adorable and then Ann Patchett has this fantastic book out that is so funny called Lamb Slide, L-A-M-B-S-L-I-D-E. And the sheep are sort of headed downhill. Right. They mishear the farmer's daughter say that she's going to run for, for class president and she's going to win by a land slide. And they think she says lamb slide and it's hilarious. It's a great, wonderful, beautiful picture book. Hey, Sally, you got any adult books here? I do. I have Chris Hammer's Scrublands. It's a fantastic thriller set in Australia. Um, it'll make you sweat. It's so hot in the book, you have to have a towel around your hand. <laughs> and uh, it starts off with literally a bang, a Anglican priest shooting people. Okay, uh, and you're holding something in your hand too, High Five? High Five is this great book um, from Adam Rubin who did Dragons Love Tacos, and it's about a High Five contest. Um, no human has ever won the High Five contest until now. Uh, well, lots of good stuff here at Parker Books, including how, g- give me a high five, Sally. All right. All right. Thank you. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by OrthoCarolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. All right, listeners, we're back with uh, Catherine Swilly, the author of What Luck This Life. And as I look at this book, I see a comma in the title. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine, tell, yeah. tell me about the comma in the title of the book. What luck, comma, this life? Well, um, it seemed to go there. I, uh, it's taken from a sentence that's in the final pages of the book, um, and the comma does not appear in that sentence. I noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I wrote to my publisher, and I said, you know, um, I like it this way. If you argue with me, I'll, I'll listen to you. Right. Uh, but there was no argument. Well, I'll ask you. I mean, what does it mean to you? Is it Does it have different meanings with and without? I don't know. It was like a Rubik's Cube to me when I started thinking about it. <laughs> I thought initially, what luck this life, that, you know, this life of ours, the luck that hits us, out of the blue and that we have to deal with and move on whether it's our daily lives or this thing that's fallen out of the sky but then you throw the comma in there and I'm wondering wait a minute hold on (laughs) (laughs) I like the title I I do and I think it fits with 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 the story in the book so we've talked about characters and I want you to read now a section but I want you to set it up first this is this is from the chapter called the ground Uh, could you set that up for us so the reader the listeners have an idea of what we're dealing with sure this is a, a section about Frankie, the 11-year-old, somewhat prescient and intuitive boy um, whose father and mother have separated. His father has been living in an apartment apart from Frankie and his mother and is now going to leave Kaiser and move to the big city. He's going to move to Houston. So they're spending um, some final time together. The ground. Here's something to remember, his father said. They were in the garage where his grandfather kept a shop. In the corner, a stack of moving boxes stood higher than Frankie's head. His mother was in the kitchen making macaroni and cheese. She'd been fixing his favorites all week. Last night it was spaghetti and meatballs, ice cream for dessert. You wear these thumb pads, you hear me? Or else you wear the glove. His father had been in the garage every day this week when Frankie got home from fifth grade. Normally he would be working at the tree service or at the apartment in town where he was staying. Today he had given Frankie a sharpening stone, a glove, and a little bag of thumb pads. He was teaching him to sharpen a knife. Show me the duct tape thing, Frankie said. 
Okay, but the pads are easier. The father took the boy's thumb in his hand and wrapped it with the tape. Put the sticky side out first time around, then wrap four or five layers the regular way. You don't get a sticky thumb that way. He produced a tiny can and dribbled oil from the can onto the sharpening stone. This keeps the blade cool. If it gets too hot, it won't sharpen right. Frankie watched his father draw the blade across the stone. He stood very still, like a deer, listening. This morning he'd heard the March rain move over the trees, its wall of sound, then whoosh and the brattle of wet leaves, beech and ash, locust and oak, from here to the Parker's place, where he'd found the astronaut last month. So much he has heard. The bark as it sloughs off a trunk, the twitter of one lonely leaf, the quiet tears of his mother in her room at night, the crickets, the bullfrogs, the flies, the ants, the thump of an astronaut's heart falling to the ground. He has heard what he has not wanted. He has heard his brain in disbelief, the thump of his own bewildered heart. I have to leave Sunday, his father said. Next Sunday? This Sunday. And there's something I want you to remember. The thumb pads, Frankie said, I won't forget. I want you to remember that I don't have a choice. Why can't you stay? Frankie, I can't. You'll understand someday. Your mom and I, we can't. The boy looked at the stack of boxes. They were labeled tools, books, miscellaneous, an ordered retreat. They'd been stashed here last year at the grandparents' house where Frankie and his mother live now because his father's apartment was so small. The apartment in Houston would be bigger. The boxes would go. Now you try, his father said. Bring the blade toward you at an angle like this, 10 or 20 degrees. Frankie guessed at 20 degrees and drew the knife slowly across the stone. He has never told anyone. He heard the shuttle come apart. You want to watch how you draw the blade, his father said. It makes a difference. That's more than 20 degrees. He tried again. The blade made a rasping noise. Good, his father said. That's good. Yesterday, his father had shown him how to gut a fish. The day before, they tied a fly. Something to learn every day, like cramming for a test. I heard a joke at school today. Want to hear it? Pull the blade more slowly. A little kid went up to his grandpa and said, Grandpa, can you make a sound like a frog? When the grandpa asked why, the kid said, Because Daddy says when you croak, we're all going to Disneyland. That's sick. Yeah, it's funny. I could tell you another. In their old house, from his bedroom, he had heard them in the kitchen. A fist on the table, the slam of a cabinet, a crash of metal into the sink. Is it sick? his father asked. Nah. What did the zero say to the eight? I don't know. What? Nice belt. I like that. It's not as funny. They heard his mother calling, the way she did when they all lived in their house. Five minutes, she said. Supper in five minutes. His father turned to wipe a spot of oil off the table. Frankie drew the blade once more across the stone, slowly, just as his father had shown him. If it not kept secret what he had heard, the roar that frightened them all, all his father would stay. 
He touched the smooth side of the blade to his thumb. All right, Catherine, that's uh, that's that's just beautiful language. I, and again, I get back to the question: How does a journalist do this? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of hard work. <laughs> a lot of hard work. <laughs> uh, but I mean, you know, there's got to be some some naturalness to this. I mean, you know, you just. Uh, this is not language that you would have used in the newsroom. I mean, no. you just had to. You, so you you spent some time working on this craft, or did did a lot of it just come to your, come into your head and and it ended up on the page? Oh, I've spent a long time working on this. Um, I once I started to write short stories. Um, I mean, I, I'd always read written, read fiction. I had even written fiction some when I was a little kid and when I was in high school. Um, but then I fell in love with journalism and didn't really look back until I started writing fiction. And, you know, you read. We just read a lot. And my first short story I wrote um, without knowing much how to do it with another short story, a short story by Raymond Carver, in my lap, literally in my lap, mm-hmm. because I wanted to look at where he put the ID tags, for instance, um, what sort of rhythm there was between... Um, the exposition and the dialogue and I didn't know what else to do except to copy someone else well I think you're not giving yourself enough credit here (laughs) this section here where I mean you've got this very real situation of a father and a son and he's teaching his son certain skills because he's going to be leaving and and it's a father-son bonding moment yet there are these other things that work their way in The, the boy stood very still like a deer listening um, and then you drop in it was quiet like the thump of an astronaut's heart falling to the ground I mean come on <laughs> and then he the boy you find out here he heard the shuttle come apart now what did he hear but he heard something that right. made him feel like the shuttle was coming apart and right. uh, at this point he must feel like his uh, his family's coming apart right Right. Yeah. I mean, I write, I mean, when I sit down to write, what I hope for is a pipeline to my subconscious. And that's uh, the kind of thing I hope will come out of that pipeline. Hmm. Doesn't always. So where does your muse sit, up in the corner somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I don't know. I don't know. Isn't that a magical thing, the, 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 yeah. this thing that just happens when you sit down to write? Yeah. Well, it certainly is for you. All right, we're going to do something, a little here, something here I'm going to call the author-to-author segment. These questions, these are not particular to you, but they're questions I asked from previous season Sure, authors. I've heard you ask them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I'm they, ready. Yeah, these, well, these, these are not, see, you're going to be surprised oh, here. Oh, no, they're okay. different ones. It is. <laughs> these questions come from Judy Goldman. Judy appeared in season one of the podcast. She's an accomplished author and advocate for the writing community, and she read on season one of the podcast from a recent book, Together, a Memoir of a Marriage and a Medical Mishap, which received glowing reviews from the New York Times bestselling authors Ron Rash and Wally Cash, among oh. others. And as you know, Judy's a well-renowned author so you get her questions okay today. All right. i'm ready one of judy's questions is this usually a book is the result of a writer's obsession what obsessed you so much that you had to write this book i think what obsessed me was that uh as a as a journalist i am in love with an undertold story and this has to be one of the great underreported stories um i call this the tragedy that happened between the two colossal disasters of 9-11 and our going to war in Iraq. Um, it happened just six weeks, six and a half weeks before we started the war with Iraq. Um, 
so I was so attracted to all of the things that we didn't hear, uh, or that didn't enter our national consciousness. And I think that's what drove me to want to write about this. Um, that didn't, that's not what found the characters for me, but that's what got me to that setting and that situation. Now, do you think it was the news cycle, the war, that tamped down the discussion about this, or was it that they just didn't want to tell this story any more than it had to be told? Well, I think the not wanting to tell was mostly having to do with the um, human remains, the, the astronauts' uh, remains. But um, what I heard when I went down there was that the national reporters were there for about two weeks. And it's not an easy place to report from. You know, there's no place to stay, for one thing. There's you know, very few motels, and there were thousands and thousands of people there. Um, they weren't all hospitable to reporters. Not, all, not everybody wanted reporters crawling all over their towns. Um, so the national reporters left after about two weeks to go cover the startup for the war. And there's a lot more in the Dallas and Houston papers uh, that just didn't make it into the rest of the news cycle. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. All right, question number two from Judy Goldman. Hmm. When you read this book that you've written, what makes you cringe and wish you could revise it, and what are you most proud of? Authors are always revising their work, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I am. If you could go back, would you add more? Would you add less? Would you... Um, there's a there are a couple of things that I have found out that I would have liked to have written about, and there's one thing in particular that I knew that I would have loved to write about, and I just didn't get to it. Um, there were about 2,500 Native American firefighters uh, from the West, mostly from the West, who were involved in the search, and I was I was really fascinated by that experience, what that experience might have been for them to come down to East Texas and what it was like for East Texas to see them. Um, and I just didn't get to it, and I don't know much about Native American culture and was a little bit, uh, a little bit, uh, I knew it would take a lot of work mm -hmm. to get to that. So, so that's so, one so story so that got away. Right, want more to tell, right? That's, yeah, uh, there's what, a lot what, more I could have told. What, what about the most proud of the book? Um, there are some stories, some sections in here that um, were technically difficult for me as a writer, and I'm, I'm pleased with the way they came out. And yeah. it might bore your readers, your listeners, for me to <laughs> go on about point of view and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. But those are the those are things that I'm really proud of. You did shift point of views, um, right? And uh, but that's a good technique. I mean, you get in the head of different different characters. Right. There's a story in here. Um, I mean, there's a <laughs> my publisher would prefer that I call them chapters. Uh, but there's a section in here um, in which a story is told, uh, one character's telling another character's story, or so he believes when he starts out, about an incident that he did not witness. And it was technically challenging to write that story in a way that was believable, in a way that the reader would believe that this guy knew what had happened to the other man, even though he wasn't along for the ride. Hmm. Um, so that one was technically a challenge. Okay, so last question from Judy. What made you realize going way back that you might become a writer? <laughs> <laughs> when I was in sixth grade, and I was reading a lot of Jack London at the time, I had probably just finished White Fang. <laughs> My wonderful English teacher, Mrs. Darlene Ballard, had the class write a short story. 
So I brought my short story back to the class, and we all handed in our short stories. And the next day, she handed them back, and I didn't get mine back. And she said, I'm not going to name the student here, but I'm just going to read what the student wrote. And she read my story to the whole class. And mine was the only one that she read, and she never did tell who wrote it. But I got to sit there and watch the class react to something that I had written. Um, I, was a, I was a shy child, and I was um, probably turning red, but at the same time feeling for the very first time the power of story. Hmm. And that was it. There you go. Yeah. You're Thank off. you, Mrs. Ballard. <laughs> We're going to shift now to another point of view in the book, and this is the, I think, t- correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the only chapter where we see something from the point of view of one of the astronauts. Right. Okay. And the reason that I want you to read this last um, is because I think it's, uh, first of all, it's, a, it's an emotional section, for one thing. It does kind of address the story from a different level, obviously, not only the, the height that's in the story, the, uh, but also, you know, the hope that existed until it didn't. And so if you would give us the title of that and then uh, read that for us. At the window. Sliver of moon, the clouds are parting. Michael Kirkland wraps his legs around the pilot's seat of the craft that carries him, weightless through the heavens. He has floated forward, close as he can to his window in the sky, alone at the end of his workday, and what he sees, oh, what he sees, he drinks like a drug. Ten minutes to cross America. California lights, Mojave dark, neon Las Vegas. There are the Rockies. There are the plains. Pinch me, O Lord. Is tonight more splendid than last? Phoenix, Albuquerque, Amarillo, Shawnee. I-40, a serpent's lighted tail. There is Tulsa, where high school was. There is Owasso, the place of his birth. So far below, on gravity's sphere all that he has ever loved, a mother, a girlfriend, old friends, and a house. The crew in Houston, that clan of big dreamers. What luck this life of his. O speck of earth, how fast you pass. Oklahoma, Missouri, Kentucky, New York, zip the lights of Boston, zip the coast of Maine. They're gone. A check of his watch, life a clock up here one more minute at the window sweet night here comes London here comes Spain Lord I am a fortunate man sea to shining sea I am so Catherine you give us a great vision of what it's like to be streaking across (laughs) in the atmosphere Um, and for an astronaut that is the pinnacle. I mean, they're up there, and it's it's beautiful, and they're... That's what they say. You know, it's moving, and, and the thing that I... You know, if you go online, and you, they actually have some clips of the astronauts before they went up in space, and mm-hmm. this talking about what a privilege it was, and mm-hmm. how fortunate they were, and how well prepared they were, and it's hard to watch that, <laughs> and think about what happened to them uh, in this, and hard really to listen to this in one respect, but then in another, I guess my question is this, having written that and talked to the people on the ground and written about the people on the ground, has it changed 
your life in any way or how you approach life in any way? Oh, I suppose every time we read about um, somebody's life or, we, or life ending very quickly, you're inclined to think you should make the most of every minute. I loved this quote from um, Willie McCool, who was the very, very fine pilot of the Columbia. Um, and I cannot quote it exactly, but what he says essentially is that his belief was that he should take every opportunity that came along. He just had to. And um, the first time I read that, uh, stumbled across it on the internet as, as you were like, wandering around, um, I just started to cry. Hmm. Uh, I thought, well, it's exactly what he did. He did, and they were all heroes, and by what I can tell by reading and looking, looking online and listening to them talk about the adventure, you know, very good people, and they had families, and they were connected, and uh, as were the families in this story. So, um, sure. Catherine, I want to thank you for uh, coming on the podcast and, and, and thank you for reading, having reading me. and sharing your work. And This is a wonderful thing yeah, that you're doing. Uh, thank you. Thanks. Writers are very appreciative and readers <laughs> uh, too. Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, and speaking of readers, and since there's a book, uh, let's tell our listeners where they can get your book. Oh, well, Park Road Books has mm-hmm. it on display yeah. as one of the best-selling books for 2018. Great, so it's great. face out. Awesome. Right across from the register. Yeah. And yeah. it's it's available everywhere. Yeah, and you've got a website. I do have a website. My name, com. Okay. Well, Catherine, um, what's next in the writing world for you? I'm working on another book. Okay. Can't talk too much about it publicly uh, yet. All right, well, good. So, uh, well, we look forward to it. If it's anything like this one, it'll be a great read. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Again, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. In next week's episode, we'll meet two poets, David Radovich and Dee Dee Wilson. David and Dee Dee will be reading and discussing their recent books that involve connected poems. Dee Dee's book, Elias of the New Orleans Years from Main Street Rag, is a journey of discovery and hardship for a young woman who travels to and settles in the New World in the 19th century. David's book, America and Abroad, an Epic of Discovery, explores the grand adventure of American settlement and expansion into the world over several centuries. If you liked our show, please tell your friends, and please leave a review on Apple Podcast. Reviews are like the gasoline that drive traffic to the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, which is free, on Apple Podcast or wherever you like to get your podcast. Our social media links, if you're into that sort of thing, are at our website, charlottereaderpodcast.com. If you have feedback or an idea for an author to be on the show, you can email us at our contact page on the website. And authors are welcome to submit to be on the show on the author page. If you sign up for our email list at our website, thank you for that. We will give you a free ebook, a work of fiction written by your host. And by the way, if you do sign up for our email list, we promise not to spam you. That takes way too much time. We'll just send you periodic updates about the show. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our fine sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Reader's Podcast.